This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship, psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. We've reached the end of our first season and thank you so much for being a loyal listener and telling your friends about Ask a Matchmaker. It's been so much fun and I'm so, so, so excited for season two, which starts on September 8th. We'll have some new and exciting changes that I just know you're going to love. And if you don't know what those changes are, go a couple episodes back. There is a season two teaser episode. In the meantime, we're revisiting some of my favorite interviews from the last year. You might have heard it before, but the beauty of listening to something again is you get to notice something you might not have before. It's always good to get a refresher on some of these important topics. In this week's episode, we are revisiting the episode about sexual trauma and shame with Dr. Celeste Holbrook. What I love about Dr. Holbrook is that she is such an amazing resource of information when it comes to our relationship with sex. I love, love, loved interviewing her and I hope you enjoy today's broadcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to overcome sexual shame with Dr. Celeste Holbrook. Dr. Holbrook is a sexologist, speaker, and author. Through her work designing sexual and spiritual strategies, she helps her clients evolve into the woman they were created to be. She covers a variety of topics from sex drives, sexual shame, creating better connections, wellness, and so much more. Her mission is to educate women on how to improve their relationship and sex life, as well as grow in confidence, spirituality, and love. Dr. Holbrook has been featured in Women's Health Magazine, Mother of Preschoolers, Reader's Digest, and many more. Welcome, Dr. Holbrook. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to be here on a matchmaker show. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of shows do you typically do? (laughs) Oh, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, I've just never done a matchmaker show, which is really exciting. So mother, like, you know, typical like parenting shows or women's health or empowerment shows. And this kind of encapsulates a lot of that. I love that. I think my listeners would tell you that I'm more than a matchmaker. (laughs) I already see that. Head on over to my Instagram. You'll see exactly what I mean by that. Um, But yeah. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Give us the basics. I grew up in small town, Texas in a really small conservative community. Mm -hmm. And I'll just tell you kind of this story weaves into why I became a sexologist. I was kind of told or or given the idea that you weren't supposed to have sex until you're married. That was Mm -hmm. kind of the the message I was given growing up in a conservative community. Long story short, I did. I waited until I was married to have penetrative sex. And how old were you when you got married? 26. Got married in the morning because my daddy always said, if you get married in the morning, if it doesn't work out, you haven't wasted the whole day. And so (laughs) I got married in the morning, had sex for the first time, and it was really terrible. I had a really painful first time experience. And so I, I thought, 
man, this must be just the first time, right? But it, instead it kind of continued in my whole first year of marriage. Um, we had really, really painful intercourse and I started to feel a lot of shame about it that I wasn't living up to what I thought I was supposed to be as a wife. I felt anger, I felt resentment and I started, you know, our marriage started to kind of fray because of, because of that. You made a distinction that it was your first time having penetrative sex. Had you seen his penis before you got married? Yes. So we had done pretty much everything but penetrative sex. We were kind of waiting to do the penis and vagina. Now I define sex a lot more broadly, but growing Mm -hmm. up in a very Christian conservative household, you're kind of taught that this is what sex is, which is actually pretty limiting for a lot of groups of people and for women (laughs) Right. Uh, that sex is only penis and vagina. But yes, so we had done everything else. And honestly, that kind of saved us later because we still had this platform of sexuality to go back to, even though penetrative sex was very painful. Had you had experience in orgasm with your partner prior to marriage? Yep. I had an experience in orgasm and I had been really comfortable touching myself since, since I was a young person. And thankfully I had a family that was supportive of that, even though my community was not necessarily supportive of masturbation. So I felt comfortable with my body. I thought everything was going to go great because everything we did before marriage was so fun. How was your family supportive of masturbation? I've never heard that sentence in my life before. (laughs) I feel Um, like I hear a lot of things, but this is the first time I ever hear that. Tell me more about that. Well, my parents were just open, specifically my mom. My dad didn't really talk to me about it, but my mom was just, she's fairly liberal in a conservative town. And she was just open to me asking questions. And when I asked Mm. about about my body, she told me things were normal and that it was okay to touch yourself. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she was just she was really my savior, like making sure that I knew about my body so that I could give consent for somebody else to touch my body. That's so, it's such a small step and yet it has such a massive impact. Just the, just even the, like your mother probably, it's from what you just said in a few words, your mother just probably used a few words and look at the massive impact that it had. Truly Maria, absolutely. Right. So, so then you get married, how quickly before you had sex? like penetrative sex, the same, like on your wedding night. Oh yeah. Cause I feel wedding. like if I waited and you know, what's funny is the episode the week before you, the episode prior to this episode, we had a woman who she has decided to wait until marriage. And she told me more about that and like how to connect with your body and all that stuff. And when I was interviewing her, one of the things that just kind of kept in my mind as someone who had sex before marriage and, you know, has a sex life with my husband, that's a lot of pressure. Like you put sex on a pedestal And then I'm thinking like on my wedding night, I was just like so tired and like, you know, weddings are overwhelming just from stimulus. Like you're, you see like all of your friends and family, Mm -hmm. um, you're wearing an expensive gown, you know, you've had makeup and hair done and now you're like, oh, and now I have to have sex tonight. Like it's, it's a lot. And I too, I want to like point out that it's like, it's okay to wait until you're married to have sex if that's what you want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's oh, not yeah, totally. that do what you want to do with your own body. It's uh... right. Absolutely. It's just that I was, I wasn't given the right, I wasn't given a whole lot of education about what sex would be. Um, and so when I did have sex, I didn't know how to make it better. Like I didn't know I needed to like spend more time in arousal or even lose, use a lubricant as open as, mm-hmm. you know, I had been with my mom. I, I think I missed some of that education. Um, cause I wasn't given it. So I had bad sex for a whole year and it was terrible. I finally, but I feel on. like a lot of people, even if you don't have those conversations with your parents, we still don't learn totally. about sex. Totally. 
100%. We have terrible, terrible comprehensive sex education. And I live in Texas. It's extra terrible here. I mean, I can't even picture a scenario where, like, I, I grew up in New Jersey where the public school system is very comprehensive, especially when it comes to sex education. And I just remember about learning about STDs and condoms and, and, you know, I never learned about like lubrication or that you might need to (laughs) communicate what you need (laughs) to get off. Yes. Yes. Because no one talks about like sex. (laughs) Nobody talks about pleasure and that's the different part. Like we kind of learn reproductive sex. Like Mm -hmm. this is how not to get pregnant. This is how not to get an STI all fear kind of based tactics. And this is how you make babies. But 97% of the sex we have or more is for pleasure. And we don't teach pleasure education. We teach reproductive education. And there's a big gap in that type of education that makes it non-comprehensive. So even if you have a school system that teaches sex, typically it's just reproductive sex. Nobody's telling you about how to touch your clitoris, for example. Okay. So you're in this marriage, you're feeling resentment, you're feeling shame. Mm -hmm. Then what? So then after a year, I went and saw an OB-GYN who did a full examination because I thought something was just physically wrong. Like I had an old rusty vagina or something. I don't know. I was like, don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) So I saw an OB-GYN and he did a full examination. And I distinctly remember this. I was sitting like with the the paper crinkling behind my head on the exam table. And he said, Celeste, I just don't see that there's anything, you know, really wrong with your body. I think that this pain will all go away as soon as you have your first baby. And I thought, that's a terrible answer. (laughs) That is a terrible answer because like, I don't know if you, have you had children, Dr. Holbrook? Yes. I actually have twins. You have (laughs) twins. Okay. My C-section, they didn't even come out my vagina. (laughs) Right. I've also had two children through C-section and it's like, okay, I don't know about what your OBGYN is saying in terms of like mechanics after having kids, but like, the kind of exhaustion you experience after having kids is like, if you have time to have sex, the window is so small because you're trying to like also build up the willpower because you're exhausted. Like, no, there's no other way to look around, you know, you're tired. And so it's like, you want to, you want to meet your, you and your partner's sexual needs. And I, I cannot imagine trying to figure out my vagina in that small window when you're like, dude, let's do it. 15 minutes. We got it. Like, Let's go, you know, quickie is not an option when you're having painful sex for sure. It was not great advice. It was not good. What, what made your sex painful at that moment? Like something clicked in me when he told me you needed to have a kid. I thought, well, one at that point in my life, I didn't even want kids. I was still getting Mm -hmm. a PhD. My husband was in med school. And what was your PhD in? I was getting a PhD in health education with a postgraduate emphasis. At that point, I didn't know, but I started to study sexology. So um, sexual behavior became my emphasis after this moment where he told me that basically I needed a well-stretched vagina, which is not Mm. what I needed. I needed somebody to hold my hand and tell me, I see that you're angry. I see that you feel a lot of shame. I see that you feel resentment. We're going to learn together how to make sex better for you. That's what I needed. Mm. And so then I started studying sex. And I thought, if nobody else is going to be able to help me with this, I'm going to just figure it out. And so I started studying and gave myself the education that I never got. And I gave myself a lot of compassion. I went to therapy and slowly over time. What kind of therapy? Just behavioral therapy, like regular. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you not, said you gave your, you, when you say like you, you um, like what, what were you doing to teach yourself? 
So I was giving myself a lot of compassion in that I had to ease up on myself about sex being something that I was totally ruining (laughs) and just start from the beginning of like, okay, what does feel good? Let's go way back to what does feel good and then add a few steps and then make sure I'm really aroused and then make sure I'm using a lubricant and then make Mm. sure there's touches that feel good and slowly started to integrate penetration again. And like, finally, after about a year and three months, a year and four months, I was able to, to have sex that felt okay. And then it didn't feel okay, but then it started feeling okay and more okay and more okay. And I just knew how my body worked. That was all it took was figuring out how my body worked in penetration to make sure that it started to feel better and more pleasurable and that I was feeling pleasure the whole time. Because what happens with painful sex is you start to get into a negative feedback loop. Like the first Mm -hmm. time you have painful sex, your body responds like this is dangerous. This penetration is dangerous. So the next time that's on the table as an option, your body starts to shut down and make it more painful, essentially. It probably, it also probably like makes it less, I I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I feel like if your body starts to shut down, your own self-lubrication is probably limiting as well. Absolutely. When your body feels like it is unsafe, it's, it's fight or flight. Like it tries to get you out of that situation and it shuts down any non-essential systems. Like Mm. if you were running away from a tiger, you might poop your pants because that's a non-essential digestion is a non-essential system in sex. Your body's trying to keep you safe. So it shuts down any non-essential system. And in that case, it's arousal. Mm. So it shuts down your arousal system, system trying to get you. How was your, how was your partner um, in all this? Luckily, (laughs) he was just amazing. I mean, we, I don't think we'd be together. You're very lucky. Yes. I've had this question multiple times. Like I was on a podcast a while ago and a man asked me, why didn't your partner leave you? And I just want to be like, a man asked you this. Yes. And that tells you a lot about the, that person, because that's not where my mind went at all. I I would have thought, Oh, I wonder, I wonder how her, while you were saying this story, and I hope other people that are listening felt the same thing. I thought, oh, I wonder how her partner um, felt, like, you know, physiologically as well, not just mentally or emotionally. Uh, like, you know, all these questions. And at no point did I ever think like, oh, did he divorce her, you know, or did he no. leave her? Like, Right. And I know, I didn't think that was coming from you at all. Like it right. was just, uh, it's just been, in, it's just interesting to to think that that could happen. Right. Your partner would yeah. be so frustrated that they would leave. No, he, he's, he was beautiful through this whole process and really supportive. And mind you, this whole first year we're married, it's his first year of medical school. So there's a lot Uh, more kind of like going on for him as well that, you know, sex would probably would have been difficult regardless because of all of the responsibilities that we had. Um, But yeah, just an incredibly supportive, but also not me. So he couldn't, you know, absolutely wonderful willing to try anything absolutely and kind and generous and supportive but I had to fix it like he couldn't Mm -hmm. fix it for me and then so then from there you um went on to do your postgraduate studies in Mm -hmm. sexology yeah and I yep and I got I started teaching sex education at the university that I was teaching at and I started getting more and more interested in it because I realized that I wasn't the only like college-aged person and beyond who got terrible sex education. I was teaching these university students sexual behavior courses, and 
they were like, oh, you know, learning all of these new things as college kids. And I thought, I think until then, I thought I was an anomaly. Like I just, I just grew up in a small town and I wasn't given the right sex education. In reality, a lot of people hadn't. And, you know, that made my drive to be a sex educator even more strong. So after that, I got a job at a sex toy company as their uh, sexual health educator. And I worked that job for a while, a corporate job. What does that entail? So luckily, this company is an in-home party plan company. Pure Romance was the company that I worked for. And luckily, they really honored the need to have a health educator on staff to make sure that when the consultant said, oh, I have this client who's going to buy this toy, but she also experiences low libido, what do I tell her? My job was to make sure that the consultants had the right information to tell the people that were buying the sex toys. Like, oh, you know, has she tried this? Has she tried this? Like uh, just making sure that the health, the sex education within the company was appropriate because Mm -hmm. really a lot of women were getting their sex education from the woman that sold them their sex toy. It was like this very beautiful kind of organic sex sex education process. So that was really, really a, a great opportunity and a really fun job. Then I had twins and started my own practice because I like to be in charge of my own time. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, totally feel you on that one. You get, you get that. <laughs> I, I, I do get that. So, so we mentioned briefly before sexual shame. How How do we define that? I know that shame is like, I know shame is a social emotion. So how are we defining sexual shame? So I think sexual shame can be defined by feeling like I am bad because of my sexuality versus maybe guilt. So I put shame and guilt in two different categories. Guilt is like, ah, I made a mistake. I should probably, you know, try and make this right versus Mm -hmm. shame, which is, I am not enough or okay because of who I am sexually or what I do sexually. Just like an internal worthlessness feeling kind of. Are there signs that you are experiencing sexual shame? Hmm, That's a great question. I think a lot of sexual shame comes is in, is hidden a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the telltale signs that I see in my practice are things like, low libido or low arousal or feeling like I am in charge of the arousal of my partner because a lot of shame makes you feel like you're not good enough. And so when you feel like you're not good enough for sex, you may experience low arousal or low libido, or you're not good enough for your partner. You may experience anxiety during sex or anxiety about certain sexual acts. Like I notice a lot of people who carry sexual shame from how they grew up, maybe are disgusted with their genitals or disgusted with sexual fluids or sex acts or things like that. So shame can come up or show up in a lot of different interesting ways. And do you ever in your practice work with people that have experienced sexual trauma? I do. In fact, it's sadly a lot more common than it is even though I'm in the dating industry, I do encounter, you know, I think the kind of person that's becoming a matchmaker is a person who can just get a lot from people very quickly. And I get a lot of secrets. I'm a great secret keeper. Mm-hmm. I hear that. And I remember starting my business 12 years ago. And just if anyone ever asked me like, what's the most shocking thing you've ever learned? Like the first two years was like just becoming comfortable with 
becoming more aware of how much sexual trauma a lot of people carry with them. Mm -hmm. And some of it comes from parents, coaches, siblings, uncles, aunts, like there's a lot that people hold that you don't know what's going on. And, and I, I didn't, I never realized how common sexual trauma was. It is absolutely so common. It, so it comes up a lot in the practice and this is how I describe the extent of my work. So right. I'm a, I'm a, an educator, a behaviorist. So when somebody comes in and has pretty severe sexual trauma, mm-hmm. I, I always refer out to a trauma specialist because I see the trauma specialist and I working together. So a trauma specialist is like the ER doctor. When you bro- break your leg, they help you set the leg. They help put a cast on it. They take the x-rays. They really understand the intricacies of the leg, leg break. And then I am kind of like the physical therapist who teaches you how to walk again. I teach you once you have started to manage trauma and manage the triggers, then I teach you how to take that information and how to have sex again. Mm. So that's how we work in tandem, a trauma therapist and me as a sex educator, sexologist to help people enter into the space of sex again after, after trauma. But a lot of people have what I say, lowercase T trauma. So things like growing up in purity culture or growing up in a conservative household, or just not um, having much sex education can be a lowercase t trauma like it was for me that causes issues later on in life. I'll give you an example. When you are told for a majority of your life that you shouldn't wear too short of skirts or Mm -hmm. spaghetti straps or you're policed, basically your body is policed, that instills the message in you that you are in charge of male arousal. Like you're telling me that I need to cover up so men won't be distracted or whatever. So when you're policed like that as a young person, In adulthood, that looks like I am in charge of whether or not this sexual experience is okay. I am in charge of his arousal. And that is a lot of responsibility to put on one person. So just small things like that, we would consider lowercase t trauma that carry through and affect the way that we show up in our sex lives in adulthood. I guess also in tandem to sexual trauma, there's also the shame that can also come from having an STD. And I think one of the questions that I get often on Ask a Matchmaker is, I have an STD, you know, and I don't know, when do I talk to the so partner? I don't want to lose a guy over this. How do I do it? And, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on this, but you're the expert. What is your advice to someone who may have an STD, feel sexual shame behind that? on how to tell a new partner or someone they've just started dating. Like when do you, you know, one of the questions I always get is like, when do I tell a guy on the first date, the third date, the fifth date, the 10th date? Like they don't want to hide it either. Informed opinion. So. So I think the first thing is addressing the shame first and giving yourself a lot of compassion over having an STI, because first of all, it's incredibly common to have an STI, STD, right? It's incredibly common. And it's not something that changes the makeup of who you are. It is not an identity. It is something that is, but it's not who you are. And so um, giving yourself compassion and love about it is one of the very first steps. And then, and I don't know how you talk to your clients about this, but then navigating a conversation prior to sex Like, I don't know that there's a magic date number, third date, fifth date. I don't know. But I think talking to them, obviously prior to sex and asking as well, knowing it's like knowing everybody's uh, status, basically. 
is is absolutely important and imperative before engaging in any sexual contact that could transmit that STI. I like that. Tell me a little bit more about then how sexual shame can affect your overall self-esteem. I like to think about sex as kind of like the heart of vulnerability. So when, if we can feel good about sex, about who we are and asking for what we want and what we desire in our most vulnerable space where we are literally naked with somebody else, there's Mm -hmm. no hiding. It is our most raw organic space. Sex is. If we can ask for what we want and ask for what we desire and have negotiating conversations in that space, you can ask for a raise at work, right? Like, so sex for me is this most empowering space, especially for women. Foundational, it seems. Exactly, exactly. It is like this cosmic mirror to the rest of your life. Like if you can garner the worth and the confidence here, you can have it in other spaces. So I think that's how when we address sexual shame, we are really addressing shame throughout because we are addressing it in our most vulnerable space. You mentioned that you work with women. And when I was introducing you, it it talked about how you work with women. Do men and women experience sexual shame differently? Well, I don't think it's fair to say that in general, women and men experience sexual shame differently. Um, And of course, we would know that, you know, gender is a continuum, right? But I think our experience, if we identify or look perceived like women, our experience with sexuality is different. Like just growing up, you and I who look like women experience sex differently and are talked to differently and are, you know, we are expected to behave differently Mm -hmm. than men. And so, yes, I think we experience shame differently, but I don't think it's because of our gender. I think it's how society perceives us that makes us experience shame differently. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I think I know what you mean. I also appreciate how inclusive you are in terms of defining these things for not just the different genders, but the different sexes. I think you're, you're hitting a point of how much ingrained sexual shame exists, not only among females from by birth, but just women as a whole. I feel like this might be one of the reasons why um, I always tell people that if you want to, one of the the secret to a great first date is to either be sitting perpendicular to each other or side by side. Mm -hmm. And even in COVID now, like the best first dates are the ones that where you're walking at a park and you're side by side. And one of the reasons is because women, especially when they're sitting across a male stranger, it can be really um, intimidating to talk to a man, especially when you're trying to flirt, like that sexual tension is trying to be created is you're trying to create a sexual tension on a first date that that's, that's just essentially the foundation of any date. But when a man asks you questions about yourself, you start talking about yourself, women tend to look away. Men might think, oh, she's just, um, she's not interested in me. Like, so now women are holding all this power apparently because that, that men have been agreeing to this when the truth is that women tend to look away as they're talking because they're blushing, they're embarrassed, they might feel shame. Like it's, it's very aggressive mm-hmm. to talk to a stranger um, when sexual tension is building, which is why I always say, you know, when you sit side by side, you can, your, your, your head is naturally moving around and the other person's not really aware of it. Yeah. They're probably listening more because they're not like focused on your Body the body language. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. So we received a question uh, that I would love to bring your way. I'm going to call her 
Christina. That's not her real name. She's 27. She lives in London. She identifies as a woman. She dates men. So she, um, she says here, I sometimes get performance anxiety when it comes to sex. I have all the great ideas beforehand, but sometimes I just hit a blank when I get the rare opportunity to go for it. It also can be hard to make me come even when the guy tries multiple things, but when I'm alone, I can get there all as I have the time. How do I get myself to focus more during sex foreplay so I do get to that stage or stop giving myself this pressure to come? I still enjoy it, but I guess I find it hard to relax in the situation as it doesn't happen often. More context, the majority of guys I've slept with, I've dated, and it, it seems to only happen in one session, and then they seem to find someone else or aren't interested anymore, so I know I'm paranoid about being bad in bed. Yet I've had an on off friends with benefits of sorts the last two years. And he's always been happy with my performance, but I do get this performance anxiety with him and we don't see each other often enough for me to overcome it as it's pretty sporadic. And it's off currently as he started seeing someone it's probably for the best as I had feelings for him in the past. Ooh, it's a big one. Okay. All right. Lot to, lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a great question and something that a lot of women deal with of being essentially enough in bed. And so let's start there. What I always have clients do when they come into the practice is a sexual awareness exercise. So if you're listening, I think this is a great place to start. On a piece of paper, write, my dream sexual experience would feel like, and then I want you to spend a minute to write down all of the things that you want to feel in sex. So you want to feel whatever it is, connected, excited, desired, loved, pleasure, you know, all of those things, write those feelings down because everything that we want to feel determines what we do. So how we behave, we do, we behave certain ways because we want to feel certain things. So write down everything you want to feel and then pick a few of those things and start to understand the behaviors you can do to help you feel those things. So for example, if you want to feel connected during sex, then you might start to think about having better conversations. And this ties into performance anxiety because what seems to be missing in her explanation of her sexual experiences is communication because she is so worried about being enough in sex that she may not be bringing forward what she really needs. I really need you to touch me here. Or man, it feels really good when you rub my clitoris like this, or I could come so easily if you licked me here, right? All of those things would might be missing because she's so worried she's not doing it right or well enough or um, good enough. And so sex is a co-creation of two individual people. And when we get so enmeshed about thinking about what the other person needs or wants, we obviously want to think about those things. But when our experience hinges on their needs, the sex becomes less good because we are losing ourselves into the wants and desires of this other person. And so my advice for her would be to figure out how you come, you know, she obviously can do it on her own in masturbation and then bring that to the table in a partnered sexual experience. It sounds like that's the missing piece that she feels she can't come forward with or can't talk about um, because she is too worried about what they will feel. I like that. I like the, I like your answer. Um, 
Yeah, I feel like so much of this is on communication, but I think at the same time, you know, it's, you have to be really vulnerable. You have to start dating someone to get to that point. I don't, I feel like it's going to be very, sometimes like it sounds like easier than it is, easier than it seems and and it's totally not. And that's okay. Like, you know, creating that relationship or being vulnerable so that you can have those discussions. I don't know. Personally, for me, I feel like one of the, um, I feel like so much of how people date right now is emphasis on the physical, right? People are swiping all day. And and while I do like online dating, I think it's such a great tool to meet people online to get offline. It's really broken down the way for a millennia (laughs) people (laughs) um, met and, and courted each other. You know, people used to date and, you know, court and date and marry within their own community like they knew someone or or they were introduced by a friend, like you already had the value set and now you're meeting complete strangers. Mm-hmm. And one of those ways that you're meeting through those strangers is to physically assess if you're attracted to them. And I feel like, yeah, you're, you're nodding in agreement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do you think, I, how do you think um, modern dating trends have increased like sexual shame or, or trauma, or I feel like modern dating trends have really hurt the way people approach dating in terms of like so much more emphasis now is put into like initial chemistry when the truth is that long-term compatibility is always going to be just way more important and compatibility. Yes. Physical compatibility is obviously a, a, a major pillar in the overall grand scheme of things, but there are other things that are just so much more, there's so much more important for the longevity of your relationship. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And and you're the expert on attraction, but I will say this about sex. I think to answer your question before about, do I think this has eroded kind of, you know, the way in Mm -hmm. which we date? I do think that this emphasis on physical appearance has created in us Mm -hmm. the idea that the way you look in sex is a measure of how good the sex is, which is crap. That's a crap idea that is promoted a lot because we don't see anything, but really young white people having sex, typically, you know, young white heterosexual people, um, in porn or really on TV, um, anywhere that's like the dominant group of people that's having sex. Um, and so we are more focused on the physical. We are more, more focused on, you know, looking a certain way. When in reality, over the course of time, the way you look in sex becomes less and less and less and less even interesting or important. It's the way that we connect. It is the way that we ask and share and become vulnerable and the way in which he can make me feel or that she can move her body or all of these different things are what make up a good sexual experience. And it has far less to do with what we look like. And and I think that in and of itself has been eroded a bit because of the making a choice based on one picture. The other thing is too, we are so focused on, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this too, because I'm really curious. We're so focused on instant chemistry and a lot of people ask me about sexual compatibility. And Mm. my answer is that sex is a learned behavior, right? Mm -hmm. It is not natural. It is biological. We are built to have sex it is not natural. We have to learn how to have it. Just like we're built to eat food, but you still have to learn how to cook. So there, I don't think that there's really anything 
about sexual compatibility. Like you learn how to have sex together and that's part of the fun. Don't expect to have mind blowing sex every time or first time, or that that is what hinges on your ability to have a good relationship with that person. I feel a little fired up right now. I'm a little on a soapbox. You should be fired up because this is something that upsets me to no end as well. I get this question every single week when I do Ask a Matchmaker um, on my Instagram. And one of the popular questions is, I just started seeing a guy, but he's not a good kisser. Should I keep dating him? Or, he, okay, so I, I know you listeners can't see, but still, Dr. Holbrook just started <laughs> violently shaking her head no when her eyes bulged out. Um, I also get questions like, and, and this is common. I, I try to explain to people this is more common than you think, but they'll say stuff like, you know, we, we really like each other. We're falling in love. We, we want to have sex, but he's, he's experiencing performance anxiety. How much time do I give him? Or they'll say stuff like, I don't think the sex, the sex is not the best. He's great in every other way, but the sex is not the best I've ever had. Should I keep dating him? Let's, let's break down these questions because these are really great questions. And I love that I have an expert to just kind of just talk about them with me. Right. So yeah. the first one, like he's not a good kisser. Should I keep going out with him? Now, my stance on this is, look, kissing is really important. And, you know, it's a way that we even publicly socialize with each other in front of others. But I feel like with communication on both ends, you can learn how to become better at kissing together. I totally agree. I mean, it's something that you can learn together. What becomes problematic is when, you know, you haven't said anything after three years. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I actually don't like the way you kiss me. Your kisses are too wet, which is a common complaint of women that men kiss too wet. So yeah, saying something up front and it doesn't have to be in a way that makes them feel defensive. It can say, Yeah, you know so what how I would you say it? Because I feel like this is where it gets gray. Because mm-hmm. I don't want I definitely don't want a woman who's listening to this saying to a man or whatever, anyone, her partner, male or female, oh, you're a shit kisser. Can you please pack it up a little? How should she approach or he approach if you're with someone who you've just started dating, you really like each other, but the kissing, it's it's not it's not your vibe. It's not the connection you're looking for. I mean, depending on how far into the relationship it is, but I always want to give suggestions that are like bringing them into what you want them to do. Like, this is what I do with my kids too. (laughs) Not about kissing, but about other things. You know, I really like it when you kiss me softer. I really like it when we kiss a lot before you, we use tongue. I really love it. Or it makes me really aroused when you kiss my neck softly, right? Talking of like encouraging what you do like can sometimes usurp the stuff that you don't particularly Mm -hmm. identify with because it may not be that they're a particularly bad kisser. Maybe the previous partner loved the way they, you know, kissed Mm -hmm. with their teeth or whatever, but it's not the way that you prefer it. And that's okay. And when you do that, it opens up their opportunity too, or it makes it safe for them to say, oh, I also really like it when you fondle my balls this kind of way, or when you do this other thing, right? So it is creating a bedrock of communication that works in a lot of different ways. So don't be afraid to encourage the kiss that you actually like. How about you really like the person that you're with? And I get this question where like the sex is not the best I've ever had. What do I do? You get better. (laughs) (laughs) It's that simple. Sex is again a co-creation of two different pe- two separate people co-creating an experience. Speak up. Tell what you would rather have. 
like talk about how to make things better. Um, this idea that our partner should just magically know what to do with us is, is wild. Like the idea that they should just know what I want is an idea that's given us through media because we don't see people talking in sex very much, but talking in sex is what makes sex or about sex even before, not maybe even during, but talking about what you like in sex and what you don't like in sex is a keystone for good sex. Communication is a keystone for good sex. So if you don't like the sex that you're having, do something about it. Like I'm pretty rigid on this because sex is a behavior that we learn together and it can be always be changing. Um, and even if you think about if you've been with a partner for a long period of time, sex is going to continue to change as you have kids, as you go through grief, as you go through menopause, as mm. you, you know, all of these things in our life affect our ability to be sexual. And so getting used to changing sex or, or being willing to adapt with sex is a skill set that you will use throughout the course of time. That's so good. That's amazing. That's like really good advice. I love that. <laughs> so Dr. Holbrook, how can people, first of all, do you work um, with people across the country or do, do you live in Texas right now? Do I have to be in Texas to work with you? No, I see everybody virtually. I thankfully went all virtual in 2019. <laughs> yeah. And so um, luckily I was already set up for a COVID kind of experience. So I see people actually all over the country. I have people, I have clients right now in Singapore and England and different places like that too. So it's all through Zoom and I work mainly with people who identify as female and their partners how can people contact you? How can people find you? You can find me at drcelesteholbrook.com. If you go to the webpage, you can click on a complimentary 30 minute discovery call where we will just talk through what's going on and I can give you suggestions, some direction. Maybe that's continued consulting with me. Maybe it's a trauma therapist. Maybe it's a different kind of therapist. So it's kind of a way to introduce you to what I do and see if it's a good fit for you. So the discovery call is free and it's definitely the best place to start as far as, far as getting help. Dr. Holbrook, this was amazing. I'm also going to provide the links um, uh, to your website in the episode notes for anyone that needs to find you. Do you use social media? I do. I'm at Dr. Celeste Holbrook on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm going to leave those links in the episode notes as well. This was amazing. I feel like you answered a lot of questions that people had. I also loved hearing about your motivation into getting to becoming a sexologist. I love that you have a personal experience. It seems like that makes you even more relatable to the whole, the, the overall experience that people can come in to talking to you. So I, I really do hope that if, if any of this conversation today resonated for you, or if you actually have additional questions, feel free to use the link in, in the episode notes to contact Dr. Holbrook, follow her on Instagram, go on her Facebook page. Um, and you know, let's talk about sex. Let's continue this conversation about sex. Thank you again, Dr. Holbrook, for coming to Ask a Matchmaker. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard and you have not already, rate, review, and of course, subscribe. Do you have a dating or relationship question? Visit askamatchmaker.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria for more dating and relationship tips and probably life tips. I'm, I'm completely crazy on that thing. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.